Jose Ramirez sits for a pair of games and the offense isn't the problem? I mean, come on. What else would you expect from the most hilariously cursed season ever? You are listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Fly ball, deep right field. Back to Spencer at the one and two. Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. <laughs> We've been hearing about strikes in Hollywood. The writers apparently all went to go write for this Cleveland season. The things we've seen, we will someday tell our grandkids about. Not with any sort of joy, but just the proof that we lived through the weirdest season I maybe have ever seen. Yikes. Which... Which law, Friday or Saturday night? Which was, which was more difficult to wrap your head around? More difficult to wrap my head around? I don't know Friday. if I find, I don't know if I find either of them difficult to wrap my head around. Oh, because we've been so prepared for every single loss. You texted me. What has been a mantra for many of these mind-blowing, mind-numbing losses? is that they find the worst way, to the most gut-wrenching way to lose these games. And it, it's gotten me to the point where I'm not surprised. I'm, I would have been more surprised had they not given up walk-offs, especially on Friday night. <laughs> so close to texting you. It was so ridiculous that they even tied the game on three wild pitches. Of course they're going to give up a walk-off home run because I've seen this. I've seen this play out far too often. It's like a 90s sitcom. I can follow it beat by beat by beat. I know what's going to happen by the end of this show. There's this weird paradox where it's like this perfect blend of both unfathomable and completely predictable, right? And I was thinking about how I can't remember if I saw this somewhere, maybe I heard it on the radio or TV or something. If you're like an out of town writer or a national writer, you know how like national writers become like, like if you're a local writer, you're the expert on that team. You know it like the back of your hand. If you're a national writer, you know a little bit about all 30 teams. And if you're just swooping in for a series in Cleveland and you're watching them and you're reading the game notes and looking at the stats and you see, hey, Cleveland ranks sixth in the league in bullpen ERA, like, and you're just doing like a quick story on like where the Guardians are. You're probably like, well, the bullpen's been a strength. It's You look at the individual ERAs, like everyone's, every everyone who's pitched a lot, like Hentius is the exception. He missed some time. Everyone's ERA is actually pretty good. You just look at this and be like, ah, this 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 is a strength. Like, so you, you're looking ahead to next year. The, the pitching staff should be great. It's just about the offense. It's like, Whew. Like if you it, that I think that makes it even more incredible. I mean, we've seen bad bullpens. It's been a while. They've had a pr- like 2018 for the first couple months. Yes, I'm not you know Alexio Gando ding, but like 2006 when Fausto Carmona was the closer for a week and blew like four saves and big poppy hit one 600 feet off of him and um, I mean a bad bullpen is. Just it's 
It's unlike anything. <laughs> it's just so crippling. Completely destroys a season. They've had, you can make the case, and the numbers would suggest this, the best starting rotation post-break. <laughs> look at what the rotation is. They've got all these rookies. Also makes no sense. Noah Syndergaard, you'd think, well, well hey, they got something here. And of course, now the bullpen can't get out of its own way. And it's gotten to the point where it used to be like one guy takes a, a turn every single night. Now they're all blowing games and they're all giving up runs. And it's gotten to a, a point where I don't know who you trust in the seventh inning, in the eighth inning, in the ninth inning. You're just going to keep running these guys out there because you have no other options. And long-term big picture, like for as finicky as, as bullpens can be, I still would bet on a lot of these guys long-term to be productive relievers for you. It's just this is that. That's, you have it every once in a while where it's just nobody can get out of their own way. Nobody can do anything to help you in that bullpen, and it just can, compiles and gets worse upon and worse. I, I, I don't know. It's inexplicable, but it happens. We see it all the time with bullpens. Yeah. it's I, I was trying to think of a comparison here. I, I said it. This bullpen is like, it's just banging your toe on the coffee table as you're walking by. You're, you're getting off the couch. You're going into the kitchen to get a beer for the eighth inning or something. And it's something so small. Like, it's so easily avoidable. You just banged your pinky toe. And, and now something that little can cause so much pain. <laughs> and the, the similarity here is that John from Parma is shouting obscenities in his living room. <laughs> for both things, watching yes. Cleveland's bullpen blow a lead in the ninth and banging his toe on the table. But you know what? In that was the case in the first half of the season. That you would every night someone would stub their toe, like you're saying. Now it's gotten to the point where I kind of think of it: you stubbed your toe, then you hit you you fell backward, you hit your funny bone, and then as you're like ow ow, and then you banged your knee, and then you fell backwards through the coffee table. That has been the bullpen in the second half. It's not just like one little thing or one one guy not doing their job. It's a collective effort. It's but it's a collective never normal. Effort. The thing is, they don't give up a lot of home runs. So no. it's never just... It's not, Like, Stefan occasionally will give up a bomb. Karen check early in the season, sure. But it's it's that's the rare meltdown here it's usually like hey how many infield hits and stolen bases and poor timed errors and like allowing guys to advance on this or that like it's it takes a lot of different things and you know class is kind of the center piece of this because he throws 103 and he's got a wipeout slider and yet he cannot get out of these innings unscathed and you see, I have joked, I might have mentioned it last podcast, or I texted you, I know, like, should they play the infield in always when he's on the mound? How many to- How many infield hits has he given up this season? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Season? Yeah. Oh, um, and it's it, just it's... like, it's little things like that that just pile up. And it's it's funny because I'm, I'm watching the ninth inning on Saturday, and the leadoff hitter gets on, and I'm like, I jokingly said in my head, hmm, let's see how they... Let's see how this winds up being six to five. And like, <laughs> Classe is really, really good still. I shouldn't yeah. be having those thoughts when he's on the mound, but it's like, it's cursed. The, the, the ninth inning that, like, there's no way that happens. It happens. It, it does. It always happens. It's unbelievable. And, and see, like, the thing that's crazy is 
Class A has had some awful, awful luck, especially of late. He had the one blown save prior to the most recent one. Where that contact and like, I've sent out the jokes on, on Twitter. Like, did, should he make worse pitches so that they're more hit more conventionally harder for outs? I don't know. But the thing is, the, the blown save on Saturday, that's it. Like, we've, we've made excuses for him when it's been warranted. He, he blew that game on Saturday, okay? It's mm-hmm. not just a one or two things. But still, in the typical way that this season unfolds, and hi, welcome to the show. I'm TJ. That's Zach. It's the Selbius Godcast. Thank you for clicking play. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you happen to catch us, and join us at patreon.com slash Godcast, where we do a lot more yelling about whatever. We'll get to all of that. There still is a play where if it's made, Class A gets out of the inning. And it's done in such a way where I believe it was like a 130 expected batting average on the infield chopper to Rokio that's placed perfectly, that he can't make the throw over to get that out. This close. This close to still, like, last season, you don't have to worry about that. That gets, con- somehow, with Rosario at shortstop, gets converted into an out because it's hit just a little bit closer to him because it's not a cursed season, and this is just a cursed season. It's gotten me to the point where, I, you know, I made the joke in the beginning, but I'm kind of not joking when I say it's hilariously cursed because I cannot do anything but laugh and when a lot of these things happen. In, in April, in May, in June, I was frustrated. If I was still letting myself experience that level of frustration in August, given everything we've seen so far, this year I would have nobody else to blame but myself. So I just have to laugh. I laugh to keep from crying, perhaps, but it's hilarious nonetheless. Yeah, I, I think if they just lost every night, if all of their losses were like 7-1, to one, you would just be like, well, this isn't a good team and it's boring baseball whatever Browns are about to kick off and the Cavs aren't too far behind them. So, but I think because, I mean, I, I think we can have this conversation in this tone and I think I can write the piece that I spent all day writing about just trying to wrap your head around exactly how many of these games there have been. And I kind of want to read them all to you just so we all remember just the profundity of, Oh my goodness. how many meltdowns they've had? Um, Wait, but I think we could do that because really, just, you really went back through those to experience them again. Yeah, I did. I, I just, oh my God. <laughs> I think at this point, like I, I don't know how fans feel. <laughs> we they a, could tell us. We get a welfare check on Meisel. We need a, a welfare <laughs> check now. Make sure yeah. he's okay over there. Um, I I just I remember thinking during the Mets series in mid-May. When they, I think the ultimate loss of all losses was that Friday night at City Field. They blew leads of five nothing, seven three, and nine seven. Class A gave it up in the tenth inning. Lindor had the walk off. I thought that was the ultimate. I still think that's like the most twisted one yet. But then they also the very next game. It was Sunday afternoon doubleheader. The very next game, <laughs> Stefan blew it in the bottom of the eighth, and it was just like this never ends. But I, I think because they've just constantly beating you down if you're a fan of this team over and over again in the most dramatic fashion possible. I, I, I agree with you. Like, I think it's mid-August now. You can't possibly have, like, any real feelings left. <laughs> you, you can't be a human anymore. I think you just, I think you have to just laugh at it because it's just so absurd. And who knows? Like, maybe maybe they had all the good karma last year and they have all the bad karma this year and 
Next year can be some semblance of normal. That's yeah, right. That's what I said. Just get back to just luck, not good luck or bad luck. Just the way that it's supposed to play out. I would be happy with that as opposed to just hoping for good luck. Do you want to go through these? No, but I mean, we can. Should I? It's amazing. I sorted them. A little bit of a warning here to anybody that doesn't want to experience this. (laughs) Maybe we should fast forward. (laughs) Yeah, Mark, maybe mark this episode as explicit in a way. This Um, is your warning. This is your warning. So, like, and I don't want to make it sound like this is the worst bullpen we've ever seen. Because again, like, the individual numbers are fine. And we watched this same exact group flourish in the second half last year. They were the best bullpen in baseball. And in the playoffs, they were phenomenal. So, you know, this isn't to beat them down. Like, they they don't compare it to the Fausto Carmona, Fernando Cabrera. I don't know who was, who was even in that. Matt Miller, was he in that bullpen? Tom Mastny? Scott Sauerbeck, maybe? All right. Okay, so first of all, it started on opening day. It was 0-0 in the eighth. Karachek couldn't handle the pitch clock. Ty France launched one out. Seattle fans were counting down with the pitch clock. Now. That was that was this year? That was not that seven was seasons ago? <laughs> oh my God. Part of the issue is the offense has... It's been better, but... The first few months, like they had no breathing room ever. Right. And we said that at Karinczak the time. deserves some blame for the opener, but the offense deserves the brunt of it. Yeah, well, you can't say that now because they are so good that they can force three wild pitches for runs. Unreal. I mean, think about that. This team, not only are they driving you crazy, but they're doing it in a way where they just keep dangling the carrot in front of your face, mm-hmm. like, would anybody have been frustrated if that ninth inning just played out and they didn't score? No. It would have been just another forgettable loss. But what do they do? They make it interesting enough that they just completely punch you in the gut 30 seconds later. That's why I have to laugh. I mean, what else can you do in that situation? It's completely absurd. Absurd. April 4th in Oakland. This, you're right. This feels like a decade ago. Uh, Karen check again. Fell victim to a Tony Kemp walk-off single. Tony Kemp, he of the 602 OPS. Uh, <sighs> the athletics of the just horrible, horrible team. Um, but again, that's like, you know, that that happens, right? It's a tie game. That's a coin flip. You, give, you, you probably shouldn't be giving up walk-off hits to Tony Kemp. But, you know, what are you going to do? So that was April 4th. And at that point, they had won four in a row before that. You're thinking, hey, yeah, this team's still good. It's all fine, right? Yeah. A week later. It, it could happen. It could happen at any point. You're right. I mean, I, I witnessed Matt Carson have a walk-off hit oh in God. 2013. Carson. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it could happen. It's not about the one individual thing happening. It's about it happening over and over and over like on April 12th. God, no. So they were up they were no. up 3-2. Franchi Cordero homers off Trevor Steffen to tie it in the seventh. And then Class A gave up a run in the ninth. And this is the thing is like, it's so weird. Like him, who's been unbelievable his first two years, 
has had no margin for error this season. Um, Giancarlo Stanton had an infield single to short. That's all you need to know. Okay, that guy who, uh, that video clip was going viral the other day of uh, him, yeah. <laughs> quote-unquote, running to home plate. Um, well, he reached on an infield single, and Ahmed Rosario rushed the throw and threw it into the camera bay, and uh, oh he got to advance to second, and the pinch runner scored on Oswaldo Cabrera's two-out single. But here's the thing, like, Klasse shouldn't be giving up a walk-off hit to Oswaldo Cabrera. So that one was a gut punch. There's more. I know there is. April 18th. Karen check again. First game of a doubleheader in Detroit. Nine pitch battle with Carrie Carpenter. Who do you think got the best? Oh my God. Carrie Carpenter did. I just need a list of. Can you please just give me a list of all the hitters that that got them? Because I want to rank them. (laughs) I want to rank them in the order of (laughs) absurdity. There's more. Oh, I missed one. April 16th. Uh, They lost 7-6 to the Nationals. They were going for the sweep. That one was weird. I think Classe was unavailable that day. And someone else, too. And it was like Heron and uh, Stefan, I think, gave up four runs. And the Nationals had no business winning that game, but they did. So that was April 16th. The Kerry Carpenter was April 18th. April 29th. Guardians send it to extra innings. Jose Ramirez had an RBI hit in the ninth. Then in the tenth, Mike Zanino with an RBI single. They're up. 7-6. Bring in Classe, says Matt Underwood all the time, which sounds like a threat. Um, Zanino pass ball. That was the key, the killer there. But Classe gave up a couple singles again. Like seen he's, that he's given up a lot of hits this year. Um, that RBI single for Mike Zanino in the top of the 10th, that was his last hit for 22 days, which is insane. You just hold on to um, that. But yeah, Classe is giving up almost a hit per inning this year. Last year it was about a hit every other inning. That's it for April. I don't know, I don't know if I can May? experience. I, I don't know if I can experience like this. You might need to go a little bit more rapid fire so I can just get this out of my system. All right, May 3rd, Yankee Stadium. Wait, May 2nd, Yankee Stadium. Yeah, May 2nd, Yankee Stadium. Uh, Cleveland was up two zip. Uh, guess who? James Karinchek comes in, gives up a go-ahead home run to Willie Calhoun. Willie Calhoun, not Stanton, not Judge, not Gehrig, not DiMaggio. Willie Calhoun, and Yankees win 4-2 to the very next night, May 3rd. Uh, Class A gives up ninth inning singles to Anthony Rizzo and Willie Calhoun. Cleveland's three to two lead goes bye bye. Trevor Steffen comes in in the tenth, gives up a walk off single to not Lemayhew, not Torres, Jose Trevino, and back to back losses. That was a weird series where all three games could have gone either way. Yankees take two or three. It's still the first week of May. I mean, this is just yeah. Uh, May 12th, Guardians up 4-3, Class A again in the ninth, two runs, Angels win 5-4, I think, to avoid the sweep, um, May 19th, Mets series, that 10-9 game I already talked about, uh, I mean, that was 
Alonzo off Karen Check, the Grand Slam. And then, you know, Class A gave up three straight singles to end it. First two singles were on 0-2 counts. And it's like, he wasn't trying to get guys to chase. I think that's a big problem here, too, is he probably just needs to strike more guys out. Very next game, Stefan gives up a home run to Starling Marte. And that's it for that game. And then they got swept later that night. I, I wrote in this story... After Stefan gave up the homer to Marte, and then it's it's a doubleheader, I've never heard the clubhouse that quiet in between games. It was it was pretty crazy. May 27th, Cardinals and Guardians in a battle of maybe the two most disappointing teams. Well, Padres probably too, um, at least at that time. Uh, who's standing at the plate? Oscar Mercado in the 10th inning, but he didn't really do anything. It was David Fry's pass ball that allowed Brendan Donovan to score. And then Cleveland couldn't score in the bottom of the tenth, so two to one loss. That's again, that's more on the offense than anything. But bullpen couldn't hold it. Um, I think that's it for May. Ready for June? No. You having fun yet? I'm not. Nobody is. The funny thing is, I think these get more and more devastating <laughs> as as we go. Oh, you mean that right. Mets series wasn't devastating enough? June 1st. Listen to it, but it, it's following the same pattern where they have so many games where they get back in it, where they take a late lead, and it's just enough to make it so that the the eventual knockout blow is going to be demoralizing. If it's just a casual loss, you're, you're upset, you move on. So many of these are not that. It's like, it's improbable. How could this happen so many times in one season? This was not that. June 1st, four-game series in Minnesota, and I think that felt like, a, okay, the team hasn't played well, but this is a litmus test. This is a chance to like remind everyone you're still the best team in the division. And they had a 6-3 to three lead. They had one of those innings that was straight out of the 2022 Bloop Troop playbook where they scored five runs with all sorts of singles and going first to third and that stuff. Six to three lead, eighth inning. Stefan comes in five minutes later. It's six six. <laughs> Gives up a a two run homer to Royce Lewis. It took four batters, and then Eli Morgan gave it up in the ninth. And then the very next night, scoreless game. Savali and Bailey over trading zeros, and then Sandlin comes in and Jorge Polanco with a two out RBI double in the seventh for a one nothing loss. Again, that's on the offense, but back to back nights, <sighs> one run losses late in the game. It's just Kind of soul-crushing. At least it's an actual Major League player as opposed to some of these other situations. That's true. June 6th, Stefan was struggling. Sandlin was not doing great. Hentges was, I think, just coming back from injury. They need someone new in the eighth inning. Karen check back to AAA. Like, you need some new blood. Who's been so reliable? De Los Santos. Let's try him in the eighth inning. Here, kid. Here's a 4-1 lead. Four batters. They all reached. They all scored. <laughs> or it was a 2-1 lead. Red Sox went up 5-2 then. They hung on for a 5-4 win. So no one is immune to this. Everybody has had um, their issues at one point or another. So that was June 6th against the Red Sox. Let's fast forward to June 25th. The Brewers... It is a extra inning game. Owen Miller at the plate against Trevor Steffen. 
Owen Miller, game-winning RBI double. He's since been demoted to AAA. AAA, Owen Miller. But he got you. Um, That was a tough one. 5-4 loss. How about this one? June 29th. You know, they had swept Oakland. They had a chance to take 2-3 or against Milwaukee. It didn't happen. They lose 2-3. But they go to KC. They win the first two. You're tied 2-2. You go to extras. Jose steals home. You cannot lose that game. Right? Class A facing Freddie Fermin. Two-run double. 4-3 loss. Royals avoid the sweep. I mean, that is a gut punch. Is that the lowest That's point? That's it for June. Is that the lowest point? The tough part about that is they were playing a lot better. Like they won the previous night, what, 14 to one, something like that. I don't know. You could say, you could ask that question about like 10 of these. That's kind of my point. All right, let's keep moving on. July is pretty rough. Got to get through this, dude. Like I have seven other things I want to talk about and you're doing this. All right, hold on. July. First game out of the All-Star break. Aaron Savali goes five, 79 pitches. He's out. Fatigue. Here comes the bullpen. Fully rested. Ready to go. Savali gave up two. Four to two. Bullpen gives up ten. I think it was uh, Morgan Hentges, De Los Santos, and Cody Morris combining for two and a third innings, ten runs, 12 to four loss. That happens. Just a bad night. You flush it, right? No, they lost 2 nothing the next night. And then the day after that, salvage something on a Sunday so Zach and TJ can't just rip you endlessly on the Monday podcast, right? No, because here's Trevor Steffen. With one out in the eighth, the Rangers go walk, walk, single, double, single against Steffen. And a 5-2 Cleveland lead becomes a 6-5 Texas lead. That, I think, is the lowest point of the season. Coming out of the break, getting swept, and really... Okay, the first game, you had the lead in the sixth, I think, and then you got crushed, whatever. But the next two days, like, you couldn't win one of those. Um, That, to me, is the low point. Although, I don't know, because three days later, you were about to sweep the Pirates. (laughs) You were up 4-2 to in the seventh. Sam Hentges on the mound, and you thought you got out of it. Rosario makes two bad plays in a row at shortstop. But they turn, Jimenez turned a sensational double play. But wait a minute, the call is reversed. Runners safe at first, inning continues. And then they go walk single, walk single. Guardians bust back to Cleveland all sad and quiet. At that point, can't you just let them have, like, you got to overturn it. Like, for for real. Like just like this, this little kid that never scores a basket in basketball, and the referee's like, oh, oh, wave off the basket. Wave off the basket. He took four steps. Take the basket off the board. He's seven. He's never scored before. <laughs> God, it's so sad that we went from witnessing one of the best bullpens in baseball down the stretch last year, and the numbers suggest they're one of the best bullpens in the first half, and now I'm just begging the opposition, hey, don't overturn that. Come on. Come on, just let them have this one. Just one one small victory. Come on. Four days later. 
No. Philly's in town. No, 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 no. David Fry goes yard off Craig Kimbrell to send it to extra innings. What, this is again what I'm Who's... talking about. Amazing, uh, un- unfathomable mm-hmm. comeback. Chris Ossenheimer called it on the exact pitch, too. But then the Phillies tagged Trevor Steffen and Tim Heron for four runs in the 10th. Phillies win 8-5. That happens. Those games happen. The problem is, that's just one of however many of these I'm, I'm reading. All right, only one more in July, though. July 31st. Day of the trade. Before the trade deadline. Day of the Savali trade. Everyone's mad. In the Guardians clubhouse. Cleveland has a 2-0 lead in the sixth inning, but here comes Eli Morgan to surrender a bomb to Jordan Alvarez. Astros wind up winning 7-3. Miles Straw bats in the ninth inning. That's July. All right, ready for August? Wasn't ready for April. I mean, yeah, it's been 30 minutes of misery. By the way. All right. August is easier. Because we're only two weeks into the month. Oh, wait, there's five of these. All right. (laughs) August 2nd. I hate you. I hate you. (laughs) This one's not so bad. Chaz McCormick homers off Nick Sandlin in the sixth. That's the decisive hit. But the Astros win 3-2. Again, if you score two runs, I'm blaming that on the offense. Unless it's like 2-0 turns into 3-2 in the ninth. Something like that. So, and it's, you know, the... The Astros are really good. That's a tough place to play. There was a lot going on that week. Okay, August 6th, White Sox, Guardians, Sunday, day after the fight. Which team is actually reeling here? Guardians carry a 3-2 lead into the ninth. Classe gets the Babip from hell. White Sox go infield single, single, strikeout, strikeout, infield single, reach on error, single up the middle, three runs, good night. I mean, that's, that's rough. Yes. But Zach, you know what they always that's say? That's rough. No, you know I what don't. They always say, what do they always say? Come back to the ballpark the next day. <laughs> New day. Not, anything can happen, right? Flush it. It only counted for one loss. It was only one. Right. So they came back the very next day and Kevin Biggio broke a scoreless tie in the eighth <laughs> inning with a two run homer off to Los Santos. Oh God, no, no. Why didn't someone put an end to but this? But hey. TJ, that was a week ago. It was only a week ago, right? What what could happen oh, in a week? What could happen in a week? Nothing <laughs> yeah. bad. And it's just one week. The Rays one is amazing. You're right. That that first of all, Miles Straw homered. Like there should be I don't know. There should be like certain things where if this happens in a game, it's just over. Like if Straw I, hits I, a home I run, it's, the game yeah. ends. You caught the golden Cleveland snitch, wins. dude. It's over. The game is over. It doesn't like the, matter. The golden what gun happens. and golden eye. <laughs> okay, sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Miles Straw's been playing with just slappers only for like two and a half years, but yeah, finally goes deep. And then Cleveland in the ninth goes walk, walk, hit by pitch, strikeout, wild pitch, strikeout, wild pitch, walk, wild pitch, strikeout to erase a three run deficit. And three pitches later, Wander Franco goes yard but the one saturday that one was just like oh we're gonna we're finally gonna talk about that one 31 minutes in okay yeah that was just like i thought that was the perfect encapsulation of 
of all of these. Like if I had to sum, I just gave you however many examples, I didn't count them. If you had to sum them all into one, to me it's, because think of the the, the way the Rays played that inning. Um, you know, Josh Lowe singles, and then he's running on the pitch that, um, I don't remember who was hitting. Was it the catcher? Maybe he's, he's running on the pitch, so it's not a double play. So he's at second with one out instead of nobody on and two outs, nobody on two outs. They're winning that game, I think, but he's on second. Then you get him home and like, you could tell Klasse gets pissed. Can't you? Like he looks frustrated. He starts throwing 102, 103. Um, so I, I, you almost want, like, can he start the inning doing that? I don't know. And then the wild pitch happens and it's just, and then the infield single take, and it's just like. Take something off. Yeah. I want a few just, of those 45 like, mile per hour choppers to turn into 77 mile per hour ones right at the, the fielder. That's all. So that's every single that yeah, thank you. Let down oh, or meltdown that's great. season. How can people send you hate mail again? Where can they send those? <laughs> uh J Lloyd at theathletic.com. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean this this is at this point, this is why I say I'm just laughing. I, I'm laughing because if I was just letting right. myself feel frustrated over every single one of these as the season has progressed, I'd have no brain left. I would have nothing left to feel. So I, you know, everyone's going to experience these things differently. I'm not going to tell you to laugh with me, but come laugh with me because how else are you going to make it through this? And the fact that the offense is like, the offense was good in this series against Tampa Bay. I know Tampa Bay has had their issues. The reason why they traded for Aaron Savali. They've had some issues. The guys aren't healthy and They've had some, I think, some some rotten luck, too, in their bullpen at times as well. But the offense was not the issue. We were saying, look at this lineup with no Jose Ramirez as he's serving his suspension. This is ugly. This is terrible. And yet, the offense wasn't really a problem. I wasn't screaming too much about that. They were fantastic in the finale. Fantastic. There, there's a lot of good within the finale that we have yet to talk about, and I'm glad you left me. 20 minutes to do so <laughs> instead of just letting us get into that and flush all the negativity. But that's so just this season. It's, I, I keep saying it, it's hilariously cursed. Hilariously cursed. Because how else can you explain some of the things that have happened this season? Any single one of them happens in any season. Bad bullpens blow it, but it's how they lose the games. How they get themselves back in it. How they're just good enough to make it so it's the most epic gut punch you've ever felt and experienced. You'll never experience again until the next night. How is that possible? How do you explain that? I can't, but can I ask you a question that you probably can't answer either? How do you fix this going into next year? <laughs> no, you, you, there is no fixing it. There's no fixing it. it I mean, maybe you bring in one sort of veteran-ish arm that you like, but that's Bullpens are you just grab as many bodies as you can, add them to the pile, and you hope by the time July rolls around, you find four or five guys you can trust. This team is full of good relievers that I will say it again. I will bet on them being useful pieces for you. But it, 
when this is happening, I don't know what you do. You just keep running them out there. I'm not going to not pitch the guys that I think are talented because they just haven't gotten it done lately. I, I don't know. You just need them to step up and be better next year. And you need to keep adding, see if you can find another couple of projects like they always seem to do, and hope that you find your answer. Or that you're just hanging around enough that it makes it worthwhile for you to go trade for somebody in July. Other than, I mean, you're not bringing in some big relief. Like, why would you bet on a reliever? I felt great about a lot of these guys. I felt great about Trevor Steffen coming into this year. You just read his name 42 times. <laughs> so why would you go at a reliever when they all are capable of doing what they're doing this year? So, I don't know. You just keep running out guys that you think are talented. You know, keep so, your fingers crossed. I was looking something up today. God, do you ever get lost on baseball reference? And just... Never. That's never happened to me. <laughs> end up like how did I get to the 1997 Braves August schedule no but it was the year was 1998 the Braves I, offensively they were a juggernaut the The pitching staff is unlike anything I've ever seen where it wasn't even just like you know, we all know about Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz, and they had an emerging Kevin Millwood that year. Denny Nagel was really good. But they had three starters who went 200 or more innings, and Maddox topped out at 251. And then even like Millwood and Smoltz went 174, 168. But what was amazing to me is I'm looking at the bullpen. Kerry Leitenberg was their closer, 73 innings. He was really good. Dennis Martinez, I think, was like their spot starter slash pitch in blowouts and give him multiple innings because he covered 91 innings. Um, and they went 106 games and like I think they just bludgeoned everybody. But nobody else in the bullpen threw more than 41 innings. 41, 38, 36, 20, 20, 20, 18, 16, 13, 10. And it's just amazing because I feel like Cleveland has leaned so hard on their relievers this year. And part of it is because the starting pitchers haven't been able to go deep or haven't been able to stay healthy or they're rookies or whatever the reason is, but it's amazing like what happens when you don't have to rely on a bullpen more than you want to. And I just, I stumbled across the 98 Braves today and I'm just looking at that and it made me laugh because I'm like, wow, imagine class A pitched as much as class A does. And then everybody else, it was like, yeah, you'll pitch once or twice a week yeah, we'll get, and we'll that's get it. To you. Get there when we get there. Now, in fairness, I don't think this bullpen is blowing games because they're overworked. I mean, maybe they've had some stretches where they have been overworked, but I don't think overall yeah, the, the no. big picture is Trevor Steffen is just, he's out of gas. Or, you know, Classe is throwing harder than he has at any point this year. I don't think it's a matter of guys are just feeling it physically. No, I think that's making an excuse and trying to look for answers where there are none. But you are correct. The the way they've had to lean on them, just it, it, it it's not so much that guys are overworked, but they're overexposed. Maybe, you know, they're they're. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how Tito phrased something the other day, but it was over the course of 162, whatever flaws you have, they will bubble to the surface. It, it's really tough for a baseball team over a full season to hide the warts. They're going to expose themselves eventually. 
and you don't want us exposing ourselves. That's a Ghostbusters reference. You don't want, you won't get that. I was also stumbling down a rabbit hole in which I was looking up Tanner Bybee's war total because, you know, we started that, the whole Rookie of the Year campaign. Where did that begin? With us. The, ne- the, the night after we talk about it, who's tweeting about it? The Guardian's Twitter account. Proof once again that they listen to the show. But as I clicked on Cleveland and I was like, all right. You think Antonetti runs the social media? You know it. You, does he still check his own Twitter account or did he get that taken back from the... The spammers and hackers that got into that several know, years ago. I've been blocked for years. <laughs> um, so I went to Fangrass. I checked. I was like, okay, I'm going to see. Let me update this. Live stats, full season. I want to see what the updated war total is for Tanner Bybee. I clicked on Cleveland. Scrolled down. You know what I found? Not a single pitcher listed. Do you know why? Because nobody has qualified as a Cleveland pitcher this year. Not a single pitcher, as of me clicking this, had qualified. I had to set the innings total further down. I set it to zero so I could see everybody on the war leaderboard. They don't have a pitcher on the staff that qualifies for the ERA title. No, no pitcher qualifies. What is that? One one inning for every team game played, I think, is what gets you on the, the qualified leaderboard. Nobody has done that for Cleveland this year. You, do you know who's leading the team in innings pitched this year? Bybee. Saval, no. By, I don't know. Bybee. No. No, 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 no. Shane Bieber, 117. Second place, Tanner uh-huh. Bybee, 108.2. A two-thirds of an mm. inning there. And then is it weird that like, I can't Allen even remember third. Bieber starting? <laughs> I know. It feels like he's been out for a while. It's so weird. Or I guess it feels like the last three weeks have been their own season. It's so, so weird. Yeah. But uh, Bieber still is first. 117. Bybee second. Allen third. Folly fourth. Xavier Curry fifth. Xavier Curry is fifth in innings pitch this year. How? How is this team having so much success in their starting rotation? It's blowing my absolute mind. And if you would like to be down at the ballpark to see the starting pitching pitch great, the relief pitching, give it up. And then once again, you'll have something to tell your grandkids about. How do you do that, Zach? Of course. <laughs> you go to SeatGeek, but that was a stretch. No, you don't? I think you do. And I think you get $20 off your first ticket purchase at SeatGeek by using the code SELBY. Maybe you go down there just to see if this offense is for real, huh? Some good offense here without Jose. Some young kids that are starting to have some moments. Some good things happening. Once again, that's kind of a stretch. But there is something that I wanted to talk about the end of last week. We didn't get to it. I have been fascinated. How is that possible? We talked for 86 minutes. (laughs) We didn't get to any of the things I actually wanted to talk about. Unbelievable things that happen on Patreon. Kind of like this show. I thought I'd bring this stuff up before 43 minutes into it, but you had to just go and let us experience all the bullpen crap again. I have been fascinated and trying to really dig in on how Josh Naylor can have so much success as being a guy that chases as much as he does. And Oscar Gonzalez also chases a lot and is not having the same sorts of success. And I've been trying to figure out why that could be the case. You know, is it just as simple as, Naylor's a better hitter. He's got a better hit tool, so even the stuff that's outside the zone, he's still good enough that he's either fouling it off or he's still able to hit that stuff, and Gonzalez is not. 
Do you think it's that simple? I mean, do you have any theories as to what se- could separate two hitters that do something that's sort of similar, but one guy can have great success and the other guy does not? I haven't looked this up specifically, and I certainly haven't looked it up in a while, so I have no idea if this is true, but just the the educated guess would be Naylor chases, but he knows which pitches he can crush. And so when he gets one, he can, he crushes it. Gonzalez looks less, I don't want to say prepared, but, you know, the best way it was explained to me, I think this was in spring training with him, is making contact is nice. It's it's a good skill to have, but it can backfire at times because if you're so aggressive that the first or second pitch you get in at bat is not something you can actually do anything with and you make contact, you're making weak contact. And I think those are the pitches, you know, when Naylor chases, he's chasing at his eyeballs and he's not touching that. It's a swing and a miss or it's a foul back. You know, he's not, I think you hope he's not like actually putting that in play. And then eventually he gets a pitch to hit and he just destroys it. With Gonzalez, he's making contact and he's putting balls in play that are sliders low and away that it's just like it's an easy roll out roll over to second base. And you don't see that as much with Naylor. So I like that's what I would say without actually pouring into the data, but you seem like you've investigated this. So Well, I think what you're saying, I think there's a nugget of truth in there, maybe more than a nugget, maybe a twenty piece in there of truth. Sometimes you'd rather swing and miss because that saves you for you know, later in the at bat. Like if there's mm-hmm. if there's two strikes, obviously you're trying to survive. But early in a count, if you swing at a pitch that you're not supposed to and you miss it, sometimes that's a happy little accident. So I I don't disagree or or, or I think there's a, some of that that is definitely true. The other thing that I think you are are very much on the the right page here, and this is what was backed up through just kind of looking at swing percentages and where those swings happen. The way that I kind of termed it to myself is selective chasing. And not all chasing is created equal. Obviously, hitters are, are better. Certain, certain guys are better high ball hitters. Some guys are better low ball hitters. You can't just shove everybody into the same box. But for Naylor, if you look at the swing percentages of the pitches that he's swinging at, this year, the stuff that's high and up and out of the zone is also inside. He's swinging at that stuff. Not as much the stuff that's high and outside. He is swinging at the stuff that is outside and low, but not as much inside and low. Without talking to him, I don't know if that's a conscious thing. I don't I don't know if, you know, he thinks stuff that's up and in, I'm trying to tomahawk for a double. We've seen him like stuff that's up, he still somehow finds a way to get on top of it, right? He's excelled at that. And he's not just chasing both ends of the plate. It seems like he goes up there with a much more targeted plan. Then I looked at Gonzalez's. He does swing almost equally on the stuff that's in the low part of the zone on both sides of the plate. And then Tito said something the other night that I thought was, like it kind of was leading me down this path, and then I thought that clinched it for me. He said, with Gonzalez, you see him, he's talented enough to hit the balls that's inside and off the plate. He's talented enough to hit the stuff that's outside and off the plate. The problem with him is that he's trying to do both. He's trying to think about the pitches that are inside. He's trying to think about the pitches that are outside. And because he is so anxious to do both, he's not hitting 
either of them with any sort of authority. Instead of maybe thinking, I just want to focus on the inside part of the plate. And if it's outside because there's two strikes and I got I to gotta offer at it, that's fine. But I think with Gonzalez, he is so, especially the, the stuff, he swings at more stuff down than Naylor does. But I think it's more of a targeted, selective thing. Naylor's thinking, if it's anywhere in this bubble, I'm going to attack it. And if it's down here and if it's a little bit off the plate, so what? I can still flick that the other way and get a single out of it. Like we've seen that happen a number of times for him. I think he's so much more targeted in the selection of the, the chasing that he's doing. That if you just looked at the numbers and you'd say they both chase a lot. But for Naylor, I think there's still a plan within the chasing. But for Gonzalez, this is the stuff that's low and out of the zone or bouncing in the dirt. You're not going to do anything with that. And you'll often still see Naylor spit on that because he's not looking for that. But with Gonzalez, I think he's focused too much on the stuff that's inside and outside and trying to do both and trying to protect all of this stuff on the plate instead of thinking, with this pitcher, I want this ball inside. And if it's outside, I'll react to it. But I'm only focused on the stuff that's inside. And if it's off the plate, that's fine because I'm going to bring my hands in and I'm going to crush it over the fence. And I think that's where the separation between these two hitters happened so far, at least this year that we've seen with Naylor. He's so much more selective in his targeting of what he is swinging at as opposed to Gonzalez, that he's probably just so used to being so good at being able to hit both sides of the plate that he's got himself so far in between doing both that he's not accomplishing anything. The good news is he had three doubles today. And maybe that, it, if nothing else, helps him settle down to a point where he can just feel some confidence about what he's trying to accomplish at the plate. Because I'm sure for a younger player that this is happening to, to, the, to them, they have to feel like they're drowning. They're just... Where's the answer for me? And then it just compounds upon itself. Yeah, and it's tough to make substantial approach modifications during the season too. Because it's not like you, you know, it'd be different if you could just take a week off, study video, hit in the cage, make some tweaks. You can't do that. You know, it's it's interesting. Like the thing that makes Quan so good is it's contact blended with play to strike zone awareness slash pitch recognition. You know, he, he knows like, I trust his evaluation of the strike zone more than most umpires. And so when he makes so much contact, he's not chasing out of the zone. So usually there are pitches he can do something with, or he thinks he can. And then when you see him turn on them and you're like, Oh, didn't realize he could hit for that kind of power. Well, he knows what pitches he can impact. When you have the contact ability and you don't have the strike zone awareness or the pitch recognition, that's when you get in trouble. And that's when, you know, I've been scratching my head, like, why does this guy have one home run? And I said last year, I I, I kept saying, like, I, I, there's more power in there. There's more. And then I wrote about him and he had the two home runs in Minnesota on that Friday night. And it was like, here's this coming out party. This dude is a 35 home run threat and we've seen it in the minors and he's just got to get this approach down, but you know, it's, it's, it's tough and it's always a work in progress. And then, you know, the more it's cliche, but like the more pitchers see of him, he does have to prove himself that he can make adjustments and counteract what they're doing to him and find another way to succeed or alter his approach to get to a point where he's not guessing or he's not lunging at something that is not something he can inflict damage upon so it, it's the, the the problem with it is you know how much what can you really prove here in the next six weeks and you know going into next year how do you 
separate yourself? How do you prove that you've made substantial changes that, you know, can have the organization believing in you? I don't know. Um, but he's such an interesting case. I think he needs to be in the lineup every day the rest of the season. And man, I mean, they need anything they can get in the outfield. Yeah. The thing that separates him, though, from some of the younger younger players that you're going to be patient with, he's in his 25, age 25 season for Gonzalez. And not that guys can't continue to progress and get better. I mean, just last year he was great. Through all the deficiencies and all the things that, you know, that still plague him this year, he still found a way to succeed last year. So it's in there. It's just as he... Is he a guy that's playing a role for you as just the left-handed masher? You know, he's just going to come out here and hit the left-handed pitching, and you can't expect him to do much more than that. Is any of what he did last year, is that in there at all? But it does separate him from a guy that, like, for me, Gabriel Arias, who I am ready, to, I'm so ready to die on this hill for Gabriel Arias. And it's not that I think Arias is the completed project. Now, I think a lot of people say, oh, he's, he's, he doesn't have a plan. He doesn't have this and that. He is 23. He's 23. Can I wait until he's in the Oscar Gonzalez season this year, age 25, before I say this dude can't ever excel or get better? Because there are things in there that I really, really like. But I'm going to be more fair to him than maybe it seems like I'm being to Gonzalez because basically two years separate these kids. Okay, so I have a comparison and I need you... To either tell me it's the dumbest thing you've ever heard, or, yeah, I can get behind that. Gabriel Arias is Isaac Okoro. Do you need me to explain? I'm trying to put it together in my head, but yeah, it would be more beneficial okay. if you explained it. Both are very gifted defensively. Versatile defensively. Put Okoro on almost anyone, not your seven-footer, but Arias has been great at shortstop, third base, first base, right field, whatever. Offense is the problem. But you see flashes, and you're not asking for the world. For Okoro, can you just knock down these corner threes? Just be a threat. Make them defend you. For Arias, no one expects you to hit 300. No one expects you to have a 900 OPS. But we see the flashes of power. We see some strides made from a plate discipline standpoint. Can you just do enough? Enough to make your bat serviceable, to pair with your glove, so you can be in the lineup most days. That's all anyone's asking for, especially because Arias is 23, Okoro is 22 and two-thirds. I'm trying to get them as close in age as possible. Um, so, yeah. And I think they're both pretty important. I think, like, the direction of the franchise isn't completely screwed if they don't get better. But leaps and bounds from that particular player would be absolutely enormous, right? I mean, Cleveland has been looking for that person to do what they want Okoro to do for a couple years now. And the Guardians 
like they need a shortstop to pan out and Arias has his chance here right in front of him and he's been the one who's gotten the playing time ahead of Rokio and Freeman so can he take and run with it or is this just going to be more confusion and more question marks going into next season right do you believe a guy that's 23 can get better is are the things the things that he is flawed in is he capable of improving them at all maybe he's not but I will tell you again, when I see a 23-year-old that's capable of hitting the ball 114, that can hit home runs at 107, 108 miles per hour, we're seeing that. Saw it on Sunday. I mean, and it, that ball is crushed, dude. That ball is an absolute blast out of a shortstop. I see those tools. They and all yes, are that anytime he hits one, it is. I know. I know. I know. And there are the things that are going to stand in the way from him hitting 25 home runs. When he's 23 and showcasing just a little bit of that, I'm going to give him some time. I'm going to give him some of the, some runway. I'm going to give him an opportunity to show that he can improve. Maybe he can't. And if we are two years from now still looking at a guy that's between a 75 to 80 WRC plus, then yeah, he's your, you know he's he'll never amount to anything more than just a bench guy and fills in here and there. But nobody's starter. Nobody's a long term answer. But are we just saying that a guy that's 23 can improve? I, I don't know. I, I want to give him the opportunity to show us that. And maybe maybe everyone that's uh, <laughs> that's upset whenever he strikes out a third of the time will prove to be right. Maybe. I just want to see him show us just a little bit more. Because I, I'm sorry. When I see a guy that can play elite defense, has a great arm, maybe not elite, but really good defense and a great arm at shortstop, and can occasionally hit the ball over 110. Let's let that play out a little bit more. That's that's my only point. Let's let it play out a little bit more because I think a, a kid that is 23 could very well figure some more things out. But if he can't, then that's fine. Then we'll, then we'll have that answer and it'll be proven to us on the field. So you're not bailing on ice, Okoro? <laughs> When's the last time he hit the ball 114? What would be the Guardians equivalent of signing Max Struess and uh, the other guy? God, I, I don't know. Yang. Josh Bell. <laughs> Homered both sides of the plate, right? First, Did I see first Marlins player to do that? Hilariously cursed. Hilariously cursed just like this podcast. Bye, everybody. Bye.